Welcome to our Systematic Theology class through Immersion Discipleship School. This is session one called The Doctrine of God. Now, before we get into several weeks of discussing theology specifically, I want to give a definition to the word theology so we're all on the same page. And here's what the dictionary says the word theology means. It says, the study of God and the relations between God and the universe, the study of religious doctrines and matters of divinity. So simply put, we're talking about the study of God. And systematic theology is the study of God throughout the entirety of Scripture in a systematic way. And we're going to start with the essence of that, which is the doctrine of God, who God is, and what God is like. And we'll get on to other things, and we won't be able to cover all of the topics that typically you would in a systematic theology class, but we're going to cover the ones that I think are the most important for the weeks that we have. In our conversation, uh, we want to look at some of the beliefs up front as well uh, about God and what people think about God or, or gods. And the first view that I think is important to bring up is that there obviously is the view of atheism. Now, atheism is the belief that there is no God. They also believe that, that all other beliefs are wrong because it is a truth claim. It is the proposition of a truth claim that there is no God. And so they believe that everyone is believing a lie or fairy tales or whatever. There's also agnosticism, and this is the belief that there is some kind of God, but whomever and whatever God is cannot be known. An agnostic does not only say, I can't know God, but they also say that you can't know God as well. And there it is, it's another truth claim. It's that I can't know God, and if I can't know God, based on a kind of generality, nobody can. So anybody that claims to, is wrong or false or prideful because they're locking into some belief system or belief about God and personalizing Him in a way that they just feel like is not possible. And so agnosticism is uh, something that's very popular in our world today and, and very prevalent. And the third view or the third belief system is polytheism. And this is the belief in many gods. Uh, many ancient cultures share this as some uh, and some modern do as well. You find this in Hinduism and other religions that we have today in modern times. But in biblical times, you'd have this in the Egyptian culture. They would worship the sun god. They would worship the moon god or the river god. This was polytheism. And so this is still around today. It was something very prevalent in biblical times. And we want to be aware of that, especially as we look at who God is and what God is like. It'll help to make sense I think as we define and describe some of what we'll talk about. And the fourth belief system that I want to highlight to you today is deism. And deism is essentially the belief that there is a God, but he is no longer involved in his creation. In fact, some of the founders of the United States of America were deists. I know a lot of people think that they were Christians, and some were, but there are several of them that would even talk about Jesus or reference him as a good teacher and they would talk about God as a creator or an architect, and they really, believe, they really believed in deism, that God, there was a God, there was a creator, a primary uh, creator or architect, and he's no longer available today, he's sort of absentee, and he left us to basically just take care of the world, take care of the earth. Thomas Jefferson was one of those, one of the country's presidents, and he basically took the New Testament, really just the Gospels, and he cut out all the things that he didn't like about it or didn't think were true, and he came up with a little booklet called The Life, Teachings, and Morals of Jesus of Nazareth. It was his own little booklet that he created because he thought that the New Testament writers were unreliable. He was a deist. Many people think him and many others were Christians because they would talk about Jesus, or he had a little booklet, but he had a little booklet 
where he edited the version that he actually created. And so it's important to know that these belief systems are functioning all around scripture and in scripture and also in our modern times today. And to know them helps us to understand what people are saying or truth claims that people are making as we seek to study theology, as we seek to understand uh, God. Today, I'm not gonna present you with any evidence of God's existence outside of the Bible. So I'm coming with certain assumptions that we all are Christians or we all believe that the Bible is true because I'm not going to try to use natural theology to prove the existence of God. I think that is something that's important, but I'm not gonna be able to do it. I won't have the time to do it in our weeks ahead. So we're just basing what we're saying off of the assumptions that the Bible is true and we are going to accept the claims therein. Psalm 14.1 and Psalm uh, 53.1 say this, the fool says in their heart that there is no God. And we approach the doctrine of God knowing that there is a God and that he has revealed himself to us. It says that there, the fool says in his heart that there is no God. And so we want, as we approach this, we are not that. We are not going to try to prove to somebody that says something like that, that there is. We're just going to run right in and look at who is God. That's our first part of the doctrine of God. We want to look at who is God. And what makes Christianity truly Christian and stand apart from other religions is not just that we believe our God is a creator or he's eternal or he's perfect or spirit, which he is, we believe these things, but it's that we believe our God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We believe that God is Trinitarian in nature as the scriptures reveal him. And this is so important and fundamental to the faith Orthodox Christianity says this to us for years and years and years. Christians have believed this and people that deviate from this are the ones that we consider heretics as time goes on. So something that we may not hear a lot today in church because people don't teach a lot of doctrine. It is so vital that we have deep roots in our belief system that our God is Trinitarian. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. This is what the scriptures reveal. This is what we read about. St. Augustine actually wrote this, and I think it applies to our conversation today. He said, if you deny the Trinity, you will lose your soul. And if you try to explain it, you will lose your mind. So somewhere we're trying to explain it without losing our mind. And what I'm not going to try to do is talk to you about the Trinity from a conceptual place. I'm not going to talk to you about the apple and the core and the seeds. And I'm not going to talk to you about an ice cube, water and steam. And these concepts maybe help us talking to children. I think our children sort of glaze over when we say these things to them and say, yeah, I understand. And they really don't because we have to accept up front that believing God is Trinitarian is basically because we believe the Bible and we know that there's a, a mystery to this. We know that it's mysterious. There are certain things that the finite created being cannot understand about the infinite creator. And so we have to accept the level of mystery that there simply just is because God is not a man. He became a man in Jesus Christ to redeem humanity back to himself, but he is not fundamentally like us. He created us to a degree in his own image in his own reflection to a degree, but there are things about God that are not like us. He is great and awesome and mighty and amazing and has many incommunicable attributes. And so as we think about God and we look at his nature being Trinitarian, we have to accept that this is somewhat mysterious and we won't be able to fully explain it as St. Augustine rightfully 
says. But this is important. I want to describe to you or define what the Trinity is so we know exactly what I'm talking about. The Trinity is one God who eternally exists in three distinct persons, Father, Son, and Spirit, who are each fully and equally God. Now, by saying persons, uh, I don't mean that he's a person like us. I'm using that in the sense of personality, like the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit each have a personality. They are co-equal, and they are also all God. Each one of them is God. This is together in essence. Now, when you read Robert Morey's book on the Trinity, he uses the term compound unity. That's the best theological term that he comes up with in order to define and describe the Trinitarian nature of God because it's very difficult to do that, as you know. And I'm not going to be an exception to that. I'm simply just going to take the approach that Orthodox Christianity believes in the Trinitarian nature of God we accept that the claims of the Bible, that Father, Son, Spirit in Scripture are claimed to be God in many different instances. And I'm just going to put forth that perspective by showing you in the Bible where this is said and why we believe this as God is Trinitarian uh, in nature. Now, here's the deal. The first point that I want to make to you is this. There is one God. The Bible is clear from Genesis to Revelation that there is only one God. For example, Deuteronomy 32:39 says, See now that I, I am He, and there is no God besides me. Psalm 86:10 says, For you are great, and you do wondrous deeds. You alone are God. Isaiah 43.10 says, You are my witness, declares the Lord, and my servant whom I have chosen, so that you may know and believe me and understand that I am He. Before me there was no God formed, and there will be none after me. Isaiah 45.5 says, I am the Lord, and there is no other. Besides me there is no God. I will gird you, though you have not known me. And there's this Old Testament understanding where the Israelites would would do what or would they'd say this saying what we call the Shema basically hero Israel the Lord thy God is one God Jesus actually affirms and repeats this in Mark 12 29 where he says in response to somebody's question hero Israel the Lord our God is one Lord you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart soul mind and strength. And we want to establish very clearly that God is one God. Now, when we're thinking about the Trinity, what we have to remember is the reason that these passages were spoken, the reason that these things were said and they're written down for us, is not to disprove the Trinitarian nature of God, but rather in a polyistic culture, in a polyistic belief system, there were many little g gods in that time, whether it was uh, the Canaanite gods or the Egyptian gods, you have many different cultures and you have many different little g gods in those times. And so when Yahweh was revealed, it was that the Lord our God is one God. There are not many gods. There are not a moon god and a sun god and a river god. There was one God over all. And that is not inconsistent with what I'm saying in that God is Trinitarian in nature. We're not saying that there are three separate and totally completely apart. What we're saying is there is one God. He's revealed His nature and His essence 
as, as a tr in Trinitarian terms, and we're doing our best to understand that, but that isn't to say that he's trying to confuse us and that is there one or is there three or there's one. No, there's one God. It's not polytheism that we believe, which is sometimes what Muslims are trying to put on Christianity. The, the, a lot of times when I talk to Muslims, they'll say that you believe in three gods and we don't, we believe in one God. And I explain to them that's actually not true. Our understanding of the Trinitarian nature of God is that He is one in essence, co-equal as revealed in Scripture, three yet one, one yet three, Trinitarian nature. I know you're already confused, but this is what we see um, from Scripture. And the main point that we need to make as we look at who God is, is, is that He is truly one God, but revealed as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The second point that I want to make is this, is that the Father is God. We're just going to look at the Father is God, the Son is God, and the Spirit is God. So second point is the Father is God. And, and throughout church history and throughout time, nobody actually argues that the Father isn't God. Nobody has that claim. Well, I don't believe that God the Father isn't actually God. There isn't any cult that I know of. There isn't any research that I'm aware of that would suggest or say that the Father in Scripture is not God. Actually, most of the cults are going to come alongside of, of denying the deity of Jesus. And so that really is what the debate is going to be about. And so we're just going to sort of jump right into it. Just a few passages. There could be several, many, many, many passages in the Old Testament and New, but I'm just going to share with you two that simply say the Father is God. Jesus in John chapter 6, verse 27 affirms that the Father is God. He says, do not work for the food which perishes, but for the food which endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him, the Father God has set his seal. So here Jesus is just simply affirming the Father God. The Father is God. Jesus prays to the Father. Jesus affirms and acknowledges the Father. Jesus came from the Father. Paul also does the same thing in 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 6. He says, he says, Yet for us there is but one God, the Father, from whom all things, uh, and we exist for Him, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, by whom are all things that we exist through Him. Paul actually is starting to show us the Trinitarian nature of God by showing us Father and Son, and he's putting them together in this sentence, which essentially is ascribing a level of, of equality. And you'll see this time and again in Paul's writings, and we'll look at that in detail in just uh, a little bit. But there is no history or heresies that we know of that would suggest that the Father isn't God. So we just want to move on to point three, which is that the Son, or Jesus Christ, is God. We first see this in John chapter 1, verse 1 through 3. It's a very famous verse, and it says this, In the beginning was the Word, and this is talking about Jesus, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. We're talking about equality. The Word was equal to God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through Him, and apart from Him, nothing came into being that was not, has not come into being. So here we have creation. Jesus, or whoever the Word is, was at the, the point of creation, which we read about in Genesis chapter 1. Well, verse 14 in John chapter 1 defines who the Word is, in case we have any question about that. It says, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we saw His glory, glory as the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. And we know from chapter 1 all the way to chapter 4 that Jesus is talked about as the begotten of God, the only Son of God. And so he's talking about the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. 
There's equality ascribed to Jesus. There's deity ascribed to Jesus right in this passage from John 1 to John 3. We see that uh, very clearly. So Jesus is the Word. Jesus was with God. Jesus became flesh and dwelt among us. He was always with the Father. He is equal to the Father. John chapter 8, verse 58, Jesus says this uh, to the Pharisees or to the religious leaders. He says, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was born, I am. In fact, there are seven I am statements which are going back to the Exodus story where God the Father reveals who he is to the Israelites and he says to them, I am that I am. He reveals himself as the self-existent one. He reveals himself as the all-powerful one. And Jesus is ascribing deity to himself by saying, I am equal to the Father before Abraham was, I am. He didn't say God was, he said, I am. This is a very serious claim. In fact, it's such a strong claim that the religious leaders picked up rocks to stone him. And there's another claim that Jesus makes where the uh, Pharisees look at him and they say, you have made yourself out to be equal with God. The reason that the Pharisees and the religious leaders wanted to kill Jesus was because in their mind, in their first century understanding and mindset, Jesus was making himself equal with God in the way that he was talking, and he never, ever took back the words that he was sharing. He knew exactly what he was saying. He knew exactly what they would think when he said what he said. And so it's important for us to receive that very same truth claim and obviously realized that Jesus said that he was God. The phrase I am comes straight out of Exodus 3:14, as I've said to you already. John chapter 20, verse 28. This is where Jesus had risen from the dead. Thomas sees him and he, Thomas gets to put his fingers into the scars that Jesus had where he was crucified. And this is what Thomas says to him. We call him the doubter. He says, my Lord and my God. Now, if Jesus wasn't God, and he was only an anointed Messiah, he would have corrected Thomas right there. There would be no reason for Jesus not to stop him and say, I'm not God, don't call me God. But Jesus never did that. Jesus never stopped anybody from ascribing deity to him. He never stopped anybody from worshiping him, which they obviously did a few times in the Bible. So you know right there that Jesus himself allowed deity to be ascribed to himself. He affirmed deity in himself. And if that wasn't the case, if he was just an anointed man, the Messiah of Israel and the rest of the world, he would have, to honor God, denied these claims and separated himself from any kind of thinking that would have suggested his, his equality with God. There would have been no way he would have done that, but he didn't. He allowed it. He even affirmed it. And so we have to go with it. Romans chapter 9, verse 5, this is where Paul mentions this very thing as well. He says, Whose are the fathers and from whom is the Christ according to the flesh, who is over all God blessed forever? He's really equating him with God on this level. Titus chapter 2, this is Paul again. Verse 13, he says, Looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. This is very much ascribing equality from, with Jesus and the Father. 1 John chapter 5, verse 20. Here we have John doing the similar thing. He says, And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know Him who is true, and we are in Him who is true, in His Son Jesus Christ. This is the true God and eternal life. I mean, the confusion over exactly which one he's talking about, the Father and the Son, I don't think there meant, there's meant to be any confusion. 
because there is an ascribing of equality. And this is what we believe about the Trinity. There is one God, the Father is God, the Son is God, and the Spirit is God. And where we see the Spirit is God, we want to look at that, which is point four. Uh, this, what, the Holy Spirit is not some force like the Jehovah's Witnesses or other cults would have you believe. He's not some force like electricity. The Bible suggests that he can be insulted, he can be blasphemed, he speaks. All of these things are recognized as personal. He is a person in that he is personal. Electricity cannot be offended, it cannot be insulted, it is a force. But the Holy Spirit is not a force. He has a personality, and this is what the Bible actually teaches. He can be grieved, he can be resisted, and so on. 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 17 is a very clear passage about the Holy Spirit being God. And this is what it says. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. But we all, with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as from the Lord the Spirit, the Lord the Spirit, ascribing equality with God to the Holy Spirit. The term Lord is the title for God and now is referenced to the Holy Spirit. So we see this is very, very clear. Another very clear passage is in Acts chapter 5, verse 1 through 6. And you have this story essentially where everybody sells their possessions and comes and give, lays the money from that sale at the apostles' feet. There's a man named Ananias, and Peter looks at Ananias and says, is this everything, all the money that he had brought? And Ananias said, yes, this is everything. And Peter says this to him, which I think is very important. He says, you have not lied to men, but to God, and he references the Spirit of God as God. He says, why have you lied to the Spirit of God? You have not lied to men, but to God. This is really interesting. He references the Holy Spirit and he equates the Holy Spirit with God. There's a very, very clear reference. So we believe that God is one. We believe that God has revealed himself as one in the essence of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And just something that I think is important to note that in Hebrew, now I'm not a Hebrew scholar, but I'm one that reads Hebrew scholars. And when you read about Hebrew language, you realize that there are, there are nine to 10 Hebrew words for the word one. Sometimes the word one in Hebrew, hear the Lord, uh, uh, when it's talking about the Shema, uh, the, the Lord our God is one God, it's referencing a sense of plurality, not like many different ones, but if I were to say, hey, there's one chair, that's one chair, I would use a singular term. Out of all those terms in Hebrew, if I spoke Hebrew, I would use a singular term, that is one chair, singular. But if I were to speak about a family and I were to say, that is one family, I'm allowing for there to be a sense of plurality. There's something, there's, it's more complicated, it's complex. It's not just one singular, like one thing, it's one whole. And this is also what we read about in scripture when we see the different names of God. Several of the names of God are referenced in such a way where they're complex and they reference a whole rather than singular. And this is actually very important to note when you're referencing theology and you're studying who God is and how God is defined and described in words that we, quite frankly, don't always uh, understand better in English because that translation or that aspect of translation doesn't come through. But when you reference this, when you study this out, you find these things to be true. Now, there's some frequently, frequently asked questions when it comes to the Trinity. And the first question uh, is this, does the Trinity appear in the Old Testament, you know, working together in unity and harmony? And the answer to that is yes. Genesis chapter 1, verse 1 through 3, 
says, In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was formless and void. The darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was moving over the surface of the waters. And then God said, Let there be light, and there was light. Well, where do you see the Trinity? Number one, it says in the beginning there was God. And so here we have God the Father. It says the Holy Spirit was hovering over the, the void. The earth w- was void and formless. And it, what is it, where does it Jesus in this? Well, before Jesus was Jesus, he was the Word. We read that in John chapter 1, verse 1 through 3 and verse 14. And so it says that Jesus was the Word. Well, where do we see Jesus in here? It says that right there in verse 3. And then God spoke and said, let there be light. The communication of God. Jesus was the Word, and He's right there in the creation account where you have Father, Son, or Word, and Holy Spirit. Trinitarian nature of God. Before Jesus was Jesus, He was the Word. And you see this. Now, there are other pictures of the Holy Spirit referenced in specific language in the book of Genesis. There are several of them just in Genesis 1 to 11, but here's one of them in verse 26 of chapter 1. Then God said, let us make man in our own image according to our own likeness. Let us. He is not consulting the angels because the angels were not created in the image of God. These are created beings that were created different than God. They were servants of God. They they are messengers of God. They are warriors from God. They are not in the image of God. So God is not consulting angels. He says, let us make man in our own image. He says a similar thing in Genesis 3.22. Then the Lord God said, behold, the man has become like one of us. Genesis 11.7, come let us go down. And there confuse their language. This is at the Tower of Babel. You have this three times. There's another reference that's very similar. Chapter 1 through 11 in Genesis alone, just right there. If you don't have a Trinitarian view of who God is, you'd have to come up with another explanation of this. And I personally have never heard a good one. A Trinitarian nature makes sense when you read these passages and you reflect on what exactly is meant there. It starts to make sense. So the Trinity is, appears in the Old Testament We see this time and again. And the second question that's frequently asked is, does the Trinity appear in the New Testament? Yes, many, many times. Luke chapter 1, verse 35 says, The angel answered and said to her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. For that reason, the Holy Child shall be called, called the Son of God. And here you have the Most High, the power of the Most High, and we know that Luke chapter 24 references the Holy Spirit. It says right here, Holy Spirit will come upon you, the Most High, and Jesus the Child, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Unity, harmony, working together. We see this again in Matthew chapter 3, verse 16 through 17. After being baptized, Jesus came up immediately from the water, and behold, the heavens were open, and he saw the Spirit of God descending as a dove and lightning on him. And behold, a voice out of the heavens said, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Oh, here you have the voice of the Father saying, this is my beloved son. You have the son standing in the water and you have the Holy Spirit descending upon Jesus in the form of a dove. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. This is a picture of unity and harmony of the Trinity working together. You have also in the Great Commission, Matthew chapter 28, verse 18 through 20, you see the Trinity working together here. Jesus came up and spoke to them saying, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you, and lo, I am with you always, even to the end 
of the age. Here you have Jesus referring uh, the Father giving him authority and the Holy Spirit uh, being the baptizer. All of these working together. I will be with you. The Father gave me authority. The Holy Spirit baptized people in, uh, in the Holy Spirit. You, you see this, the name Father, Son, and Holy Spirit being referenced together in one. Baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. What's that all about? Why not just in the name of Yahweh? Why not just in the name of Jesus? Why in the name of the Holy Spirit? This is profound, I think. And we see also uh, the Trinity working together in harmony uh, other times throughout the Bible. In 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 1-2, through 2, it says, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who reside as aliens scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Bithynia, who are chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father by the sanctifying work of the Spirit to obey Jesus Christ. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, right here in 1 Peter chapter 1. So you see this time and time again, and I think it is very, very important. Also, when you read the early church fathers, do you see the doctrine of the Trinity formed in the early church? Yes. When you read the early church fathers like Tertullian and Augustine and many of these others, did they believe the Trinity? Yes. So this is Orthodox Christianity going all the way back to what we read about Old Testament, New Testament. You can read church fathers, the Council of Nicaea. They affirmed this in 325 AD for the church moving forward. And the Orthodox Christian church has always affirmed the Trinity as a doctrine. If you were to ask me why have we lost or why have some Christians today lost this perspective, because I would say to you that many people do not teach this, nor do th are they able to understand it from the Scriptures. Now, we all are going to have some mystery when it comes to the Trinity. There's, there's going to be a complexity around this issue. It's hard to explain. There are some things we know to say, things we don't know to say. But for us not to know anything or to be 100% ignorant is not okay. And that's part of why people deviate from these foundational doctrines. And we go back to the words that Augustine said. You know, if you try to explain the Trinity, you lose your mind. But if you deny it, you lose your soul. So we, of course, want to make sure that we try to explain it uh, the best that we can from just a biblical perspective. And I think that that is where we need to stand. Now we're looking at who, what, uh, what God is like or who God is, and now we're going to look a little bit at what God is like because Scripture reveals quite a bit about the attributes of God. However, I think it's important to divide these attributes into two categories, which systematic theology always does. There are different ways of saying that. If you're reading the foundations of Pentecostal theology, you're going to see these two terms, absolute characteristics of God and the moral attributes of God. So you have the different attributes. Absolute would be incommunicable. These are attributes that God has in and of himself. He does not share them with us. And the moral attributes of God, he does share some of these with us, obviously. And so incommunicable, communicable, absolute, moral some these ones are not shared with us and these ones are and so we want to look first at the absolute attributes of God the first one is that God is self-existent and this means that God is the creator and the source of all life and being this attribute is referred to in a few terms such as the independence of God the aseity of God uh, in addition people call it the simplicity of God and that God is made up of uh, not made up of many parts. This attribute, simply put, is that God exists in and of himself, depends on nothing external to be, but rather whatever God is, he simply is. He is self-existent. 
This may be hard to understand, but that's because we're created beings trying to understand the uncreated. We're finite trying to understand the infinite. But here's a passage that essentially says this. For, uh, Colossians chapter 1, verse 15 says, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, for by Him all things were created, both in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through Him and for Him. He is before all things, and in Him all things hold together. Really just the centrality is God. He's before, He's after, He's in the middle of. He created all things. All things are for Him. All things are through Him. We see the centrality of God. We see the self-existence of God. This is so important that God is uncreated, and we see that right here. John chapter 5 Verse 25 says something similar, Jesus speaking, Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and now is when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. For just as the Father has life in himself, even so he gave the Son also to have life in himself. In himself. It's not something that he received like we do. We are given life by God. That's the whole point of the gospel. Death, burial, resurrection of Jesus Christ. When we believe upon Him, His Spirit comes and dwells inside of us, and He makes us alive. We are born again. We have new life from God. We were given life. God was not given life. God is life Himself. So God is the Creator. He is uncreated. He is self-reliant, self-existence, in need of nothing, and totally complete. The self-existence of God. The second absolute attribute um, of God is that God is immutable. Uh, this means that he is unchanging in his being. He is perfect uh, in his purposes and his promises. Scripture is clear that God is perfect in all things and he is unchanging in his perfection. God does not need to change. He does not need to repent. Um, he does not need to grow like we are growing in the likeness of Christ. God does not need that. He is completely and totally perfect and unchanging as a result of that. Does God feel and have emotion? Yes. However, as he feels, he does not change who he is based on what he feels. Something on the outside cannot change who God is on the inside. This is who our God is. Now, there's some passages that tell us this. Malachi chapter 3, verse 6 says, For I, the Lord, do not change. Psalm 102, 25 says, Of old you founded the earth, and the heavens are the work of your hands. Even they will perish, but you endure, and all of them will wear out like a garment, like clothing you will change them, and they will be changed, but you are the same. James chapter 1, verse 17 says, Every good thing given and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shifting of shadows. In other words, he doesn't change. Hebrews 13, 8 says, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Men and women change, culture change, Preferences change, fads change, a lot of things change, but God does not change. He is immutable. The third attribute, absolute attribute of God is that God is eternal. It's the eternality of God. He has no beginning. He has no end or succession of moments in his own being. And he sees all time equally, vividly, yet God sees events in time and acts in time. God is outside of time because time is an order and a structure in which he created. Now, some people debate this today, and I understand that they call it open theism or open theology, but the reality is, is that time itself was something that God created. If God created the earth and God created the sun and God created the universe and the earth, you know, spins at a certain 
amount of time and the sun as well and we function by time light and darkness function by time god put all of this into motion you know god told the seas where the borders were going to be he he uses tides they come in and they go out all of this functions by time which is a structure that god created and so it's important for us to realize the eternality of god and that god does not exist in time but he does act in time so he can interact and act within time as things go on, as things happen, but he is not limited by nor restricted by time itself because he's the creator of that structure. And this understanding um, opens the idea that God is, is outside by looking at these scriptures. First Timothy chapter 1, verse 17 says, Now to the king eternal and immortal and invisible, he goes on, Psalm 90, verse 1 and 2 says, Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations, before the mountains were born, or you gave birth to the earth of the world, even from everlasting to everlasting. It's, you know, beginning to end and beyond. This is sort of like a timeless uh, verse. In other words, it's to say that without time. Uh, Re Revelation 1.8, Jesus says, I'm the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord, who is and was and who is to come. And it's just a human way of, of helping us understand the eternality of God. Before, I am, and I always will be. And I always was. In Isaiah, there are a couple passages that talk about God always being. He always was. He is eternal. The eternality of God is hard to understand because obviously we're finite and um, we understand time. We live in time. We're limited by time. So it's hard for us to conceive of a God that is outside of time. But that certainly is who God is. He doesn't share this attribute with us other than we also, when we believe upon Jesus Christ, will live forever. And so we get to enter into eternality in a sense. And that's amazing. This, the fourth attribute, absolute attribute, that I want to mention to you is God is omnipresent. And this means God does not have size or spatial dimensions and is present at every point of space with his whole being, yet God acts differently in different places. He is everywhere at the same time. Now that's incredible. Just as God is unlimited or infinite with respect to time, so God is unlimited with respect to space. So he's outside of time and he's outside of space. This is very, very important. Lots of verses here. Uh, Colossians chapter 1, verse 15. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, both in the heavens and the earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him he holds all things together. All things together. So he's in the midst of all of it. He has his hands on all of it, holds all things together. Psalm 139, 7 through 10. Where can I go from your spirit, or where can I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, behold, you are there. If I take the wings of the dawn, if I dwell in the remotest parts of the sea, even there your hand will lead me. In other words, you are everywhere. You are omnipresent. John 14, 16 through 17. Jesus says, I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper that he may be with you forever. That is the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it does not see him or know him, but you know him he, because he abides with you and will be in you. Now, if you think about that, the Holy Spirit will be in every believer. That means he's got to be omnipresent. He can live in you. He can live in me. All over the world, God can live in every person that names the name of Jesus. There's other verses that say his glory will fill the whole earth. Well, how would it do that if God is, out, is not outside of uh, time and also outside of space? 
And God can fill all things. And we see this time and time again. God is omnipresent. Number five, God is omniscient. God has perfect knowledge of all things, past, present, and future. He is eternal. He's omnipresent. Therefore, he has perfect knowledge of all things that are and things that will be. Remember, he's outside of space. He's outside of time, which means his view is, is, it contains perfect knowledge about every event, about every person, about everything. Being the creator, he obviously knows everything. Being out of time means that he's seen everything and he's been a part of everything. Being outside of space means he's been everywhere in order to witness it all. And so this obviously just piggybacks all of these other absolute attributes. And we see that there are many verses that reference God's knowledge in this way. Psalm 139, 1 through 6 says, O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know me when I sit down and when I rise up. You understand my thought from afar. You scrutinize my path and my lying down and are intimately acquainted with all my ways. Even before there was a word on my tongue, you knew it. You know it all. 1 John 3, 19 through 20. We will know by this that we are of the truth and will assure our heart before him in whatever our heart condemns us for God is greater than our heart and knows all things. He knows all things. Matthew 6, of chapter 6, verse 7, And when you are praying, do not use meaningless repetition as the Gentiles do, for they suppose that they will be heard for their many words. So do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask. He already knows. He has perfect knowledge. Acts 2.22, Peter says, Men of Israel, listen to these words. Jesus the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs, which God performed through him in your midst, just as you yourselves know, this man delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God. There's this idea of foreknowledge. God knows beforehand because, as we've already said, outside of time, outside of space, has all knowledge, perfect knowledge about everything and everyone. It just makes sense. God knows who will be his. God knows what he wants us to do. And we rest in knowing that and trusting him in absolutely, completely everything. And that really is why we would teach the absolute attributes of God is because we want to know who God is and what God is like and the way that God approaches us, interacts with us, reacts to us. We find this in scripture. He is so far above our human thinking. He's so far above our limitations. And we need to realize that when we say we trust God or when we say God's in control, what we're saying is, is that God is above it all. God is greater than it all. God has it all in view. He has it all under control. He knows what's going on. Nothing skips his view. Nothing goes under his radar without him noticing. This is why we want to see the glory of God. We want to see the beauty of God, the, the awesomeness of God. You cannot be in awe of God without seeing his awesomeness. So we're talking about a great and mighty God, who he is and what he is like. Now, we won't have time to get into the moral attributes of God, but I will just list them for you as you'll have them on your notes. God is good. God is love. God is wise. God is truth. God is faithful. God is mercy. God is grace. God is patient. God is holy. God is peace. God is righteous. God is just. These are some of his attributes, these moral attributes of God. And we certainly share in some of these according to scripture as it tells us that God has allowed us to share in some of these. In theology, we study God to know Him, love Him, and draw close to Him. And in the doctrine of God, we are drawn into a reference, uh, into a reference for who God is and what He is like. And my prayer is that as we look 
at the awesomeness of God that we are just simply blown away and more drawn to him as a result of it. This is not about getting more knowledge per se, although we do want knowledge, but it's knowledge that can unlock our heart to love him more. And that's what this is all about to me. Studying theology is all about knowing how great God is so that I can serve him greatly. This is what we're after in our systematic theology class. So let me pray for our class before we close. Father, I just thank you for your love. I thank you for this, this time where we get to study um, your attributes. We get to study your person, who you are and what you're like. And Lord, what I pray is a revelation of who you are. I pray we would know you better. Um, we would have a greater reverence for you. And we would simply be restored back to an awe and a wonder of how great you are and be drawn toward you, drawn toward your presence, your person, wanting to serve you with all of our mind, heart, soul, and strength. And so, Father, we love you and we thank you. We thank you for your revelation. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, God bless you guys, and I look forward to our next class in this uh, series together. Yeah.